Kia I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival, Waituhi or Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. In 1975, Marilyn Waring was elected to the New Zealand Parliament as the MP for Raglan. Aged just 23 and only the 15th woman to enter Parliament, she served through the turbulent years of Muldoon's government, including as chair of the Public Expenditure Committee, before crossing the floor to support nuclear-free legislation, which ultimately led to the fall of the national government. The Political Years is an autobiographical account of her time at the forefront of male-dominated public life and sits alongside other books including Counting for Nothing and Still Counting. The talented and determined wearing speaks with Jennifer Curtin. We hope you enjoy it. So this is not your first book to reflect on the nature of politics, power, patriarchy and public policy. You have more than eight books and monographs to your name. So I wonder if you could start by telling us how it is you came to write this book. I had a lot of boxes in the Alexander Turnbull Library uh, that had been um, just collected at the end of every year. And Jim Trowey from the Turnbull had come to meet with me um, in my first term and said that the Turnbull didn't collect everybody's papers, but he thought mine might be interesting. So could he have them? And I was delighted because we were buried all the time. So I always knew those papers were there. From the very beginning, when I went into Parliament, I can remember Francois Giraud's book, I Give You My Word. She was the first Minister of State for Women in France, uh, under Destang, I think. I can remember The Price of My Soul, Bernadette Devlin. Um, I've collected and read uh, political women's biographies and autobiographies, you know, up until Harriet Harman's, for example. Uh, and so I always knew all of that material was there. I didn't like thinking about my time in Parliament very much. I had plenty of other things to occupy myself with. Um, and uh, I got to a stage, though, where I thought, I couldn't actually make any more impression on the central economic system. I mean, you can only say the same things so many times, and I was bored witless with it. <laughs> um, but that also coincided with the time I was working for five years on the regional assistance mission in the Solomon Islands. Then my dad got sick. And uh, so I, that really put an end to doing a lot of consultancies and doing a lot of international work. So I decided I would um, focus on home, focus on uh, supervising PhDs, and maybe I could go and have a look at the boxes in the library. Um, but I'm sure you'll sympathise with this, even if other people don't. Uh, I spent two years reading about what autobiography was. Uh, and 
um, to find that there were internecine border disputes between history, black studies, feminist studies, cultural studies. Um, there was something called feminist life writing, which didn't seem to be what I was doing. Um, I went to, an, I found out there were international groups of academics who held international conferences on these kinds of things. So I went to one of those to see what I could learn. Um, and then I was reading lots of um, texts and Vivian Gornack's, one of her little books, uh, when she's talking about teaching creative writing in California. And one of the sentences early said, oh, everybody's got a story, only some people can write. And so <laughs> I stopped reading about autobiography at that point. Uh, and then went down to start opening the cartons. And pretty much I opened them in chronological order. Uh, and I let them drive the book. Really, that's what happened. And that's how it's organised, year by year by year, which really makes for an under a clear understanding of the work and how it, how it proceeded when you were in Parliament. A lot of the books that I've read by great men and women about their political lives um, tend to pick an issue for a chapter. I mean, mind you, lots of them have much, had much longer political lives than mine was. Uh, and I thought that was really boring. And I also thought I'd never read a book that tried to convey how it was like from day to day to day, the kind of relentlessness of it all. Um, how it is when you don't have paid staff and researchers and librarians and can call on government ministries or agencies. Uh, how it really is in those years when we had uh, a constituency which it was still possible to cover. I mean, the size of them now is ridiculous. So there were, there were a whole range of, of possible stories. I wanted to tell the story of the women's movement in that period, and I knew that was in those boxes. Mm. The struggle of a lot of people in my caucus to try and change anything in terms of Muldoon's economic regulation and attempts to control everything, you know, still with World War II regulations, so there were a lot of things that I wanted to cover off, uh, and it took a really long time. But it's worth it. Thank you. So, given your radical political economic thought, can you walk us through why you, when you were 22, 23, chose elected office, a place that really only allows for incremental and reformist rather than radical change, and why you chose the National Party as your political family? Um, well, the very first paragraph of the book, because it's probably the thing I've been asked the most <laughs> in my life, that was just tells you the story of my sitting in the Victoria University Library, reading Norman Kirk's response to Venn Young's announcement that he was going to introduce uh, a homosexual law reform bill. And uh, Kirk said it wasn't normal and he'd never, you know, vote for it. And I got up and walked down to Lambton Key and joined the National Party. Uh, and 
I was also at the time a member of the Women's Electoral Lobby in 1974 in Wellington, and I loved going to their meetings. There's such a great group of women there. They had written to the Labour Social Credit and National Party's directors asking why there weren't more women in Parliament. And the, it looked like the boys had had coffee before they wrote their responses because they were all identical, <laughs> saying that we'd love to have more women if only they offered themselves, you know, for selection. And I thought, oh, well, that's ridiculous. You know, even if we did offer ourselves for selection, we wouldn't get chosen. But um, so I'll make it a little a political activity. And Raglan, my hometown, um, had Douglas Carter retiring. As a political scientist, I read the constitutions of all the parties. <laughs> And um, I realised that Rule 242 of the Labour Party said that uh, when I signed a form to uh, become a nominee, um, and you also hand over money when you do that, so it's a contract, and it says at all times and on all occasions I will vote in accordance with the majority of the Labour Party caucus or council members. And I thought, well, that's not for me. <laughs> if you thought of a few people like Jerry Wall and Joe Walding, you'd know why. <laughs> and um, the other side didn't look so great, um, but they all said that they were all about social justice and liberty and freedom. So, you know, <laughs> what's the problem, really, as long as you can practice it? <laughs> and I suppose, ultimately, you know, you don't get necessarily chucked out of the National Party for crossing the floor. Well, no, you don't. Um, and Muldoon, I try to make it really clear in this, Muldoon, even when we had only a one-seat majority, and although every time anybody said anything remarkably in opposing anything, they'd say, oh, well, if you do that, we'll have to go to the country. Uh, <laughs> And, but he made it very clear that it was only his cabinet ministers that he expected to fall into line. Um, and that was a, a practice that he'd had. Um, Holyoke's practice was that he thought that was okay, but if anybody wanted to cross the floor, he would say to them, oh, where was it you had to be in the electorate that day? You know. So the, there was a pretense that it was okay in the National Party. So Raglan is smack in the middle of the Waikato region, and it's often seen by outsiders, particularly those north of the Bombays, that being from um, Hamilton and the Waikato is, is coming from a place that's rather provincial and unsophisticated. So it's kind of ironic, I think, that it was you and Mike Minogue who were to represent more independence of thought over things like the nuclear-free issue, or at least were brave enough to break with the party line. So do you think there's a reason why we end up with you know, women and independent thinkers from the Waikato? And, and what's it like representing a rural and re or regional electorate um, with its assumption of conservatism that goes with it? Well, I was born in Ngāruruā here, uh, in the um, Catholic 
maternity unit there. My mother stood on the balcony and watched preparations for the tangi of Te Puyahirangi. So there's one major woman leader. Um, after Koroki's death, we have Te Arikinui, Dame Te Ata Irangi Kahu. There's very strong women leadership among Waikato Tainui. The second woman ever to be in a National Party caucus was Hilda Ross. And Dame Hilda Ross spent years on the hospital board and was deputy mayor and had never joined a political party when National asked her to stand in a by-election. Esme Tomlinson from Gisborne weighed up which party she would go for in a highly marginal seat. Um, Rona Stevenson from Taupo. So all of these women you see are in what was called the Waikato Division of the National Party. Uh, Rona Stevenson for years, I think, was um, head of the Women's Division of Federated Farmers and always said that she'd support any good woman regardless of political affiliation. So there were people even on my pre-selection committee who knew that history. Uh, and, and in terms of, um, I mean, I never for a moment thought I could win Raglan. This was um, highly unusual. But to then be the candidate for Raglan, when Mike Minogue was candidate for Hamilton West and Ian Shearer mm. was candidate for Hamilton East, meant on so many issues, we crossed together. So we crossed together on national development issues. We were always all in the same uh, voting line on all reproductive freedom issues. Um, my electorate officials certainly felt quite comfortable when they went to divisional or national meetings because there was this rebel rump <laughs> from the Waikato, but they were quite pleased about it. I think the only time where Michael wasn't with me was the 18 times I crossed one night um, in the Industrial Relations Act, and he only came on youth rates. Uh, but yeah, it made a big difference. Mm. It made a really big difference, having two people who really did their homework, who were across a range of issues I had no idea about. I knew nothing about roading, local government, road safety, transportation, you know, things Michael knew a great deal about. Um, Ian was very strong around environment, conservation, disability. So I think together it was a really good team. The book, as I said, walks us through each year of your nine years and your story suggests that each year offered new hurdles for a young woman in parliament. Indeed, the photograph on the front cover of your book, which I don't know if, I'm hoping you've all got a copy, but this is it here. <laughs> Um, really, Marilyn's the only one, and, and, and it's on a staircase, and all these men are kind of looking down, and she's in the front row, obviously. But um, it portrays a really powerful image of difference, I think. And um, obviously, you were the only woman in the National Caucus between 78 and 81. I was the only woman in the North Island 
in Parliament from 75 to 81, that's an awful lot of mail. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so, so what was it like, you know, this sort of, such a, such a male environment and initially and then with the scandalous truth story and then that period when you were on your own as the sole woman and did it get easier over time or did the new hurdles just sort of keep appearing? I think cumulatively it got worse. Um, but I had these wonderful opportunities. So in 1980, I got the British Commonwealth and Foreign Office um, trip to the UK, and it's a real research trip, um, and then also offered opportunities to uh, be briefed, especially with the European Commission. Uh, that I found very important. It was just such a relief and such a cerebral relief. I think it was the relentlessness of dealing with people who were living their whole lives yesterday, you know, but they were running the country. Uh, that was so hard. Um, and then the opportunity I had to go to Harvard, which was another four months out, and my constituency and especially the National Party in Waipa were so supportive of that. I think they could see the stress. And it was in this period, I think, that Mike described our jobs as turning 360 every 24-7 to stop even worse things from happening. And I think that's how it felt. And so do you have any lessons or learnings that you'd share with 22-year-old women who might be wanting to stand? Um, the truth is no, because I got told so frequently what I should be doing, uh, and I did not find that helpful. So I don't do it to younger women today either. <laughs> but it does seem in the book there's this ongoing balance between the really important policy deliberative work that you want to do in the constituency work, and then the intra-party politics and machinations that you have to juggle because, you know, you can say something behind closed doors, but you can't put that in a letter or you can't say that to the media. So how, how does that work in an everyday sense? It must be quite draining. It's, it, it's, it ate me up. Really, it ate me up. You know, I, I speak really early of getting a letter from the um, Waikato Presbytery, uh, and they were in favour of nuclear-free New Zealand. So this is really early, I think it's 76 or 77. In favour of nuclear-free New Zealand, opposed to apartheid, rugby or any other sporting contacts, wishing to see development assistance raised significantly, and I get that letter, and I think, but I agree with all of that, you know, but I can't write that in a letter to you, because the cost of doing that inside caucus isn't one I can pay just at the moment, you know, so you're weighing that up all the time. Uh, if I hadn't had my constituency, I really think I would have run screaming from the room. Uh, and first of all, I had 
such people. That, when I was going through the boxes, they were extraordinary, these people. They cared for me so much. And they did so much for me, even when they disagreed, you know, they were going to defend to the end my right to, you know, actually practice liberty and social justice and freedom. Uh, and also, you know, there's some terribly, terribly beautiful parts of what was Raglan and what was then Waipa. And so I always knew where I could stop and just take, you know, 15 minutes and walk into the bush between Newtonui and Kafia or just sit at Aotea Harbour or just, you know, even on the western side of the Waikato, um, up from Mangakino, there were, there were places of, that just kind of gave me some energy back, as well as the people there who gave me my energy back. So it was every three days you'd go back and you'd just try and feed yourself, feed yourself, feed yourself, and get ready to go back to Wellington again. That's a, it's a really powerful thing that comes through the whole book, that support that you get from your local people and place. Just tell us a little bit about what happens then with the redistribution when suddenly, you know, your Huntley gets taken off you and you get given the horse riding set of Cambridge. I was really comfortable in Raglan because of, you know, I went to school in Ngāruawahe, primary school in Taupiri. I'd served in my dad's butcher shop in Huntley for many years. Uh, and swam, swimming club there, and you know, I, that was, I mean, those people were never gonna vote national, but they were my people, that's where I was the most comfortable. And uh, there was lots of, obviously, um, rural constituency, um, but to, in the, in the boundary change, to lose Huntley and Narua here, um, look, I was being offered, well, offered, in inverted commas. Uh, I was advised that Lance Adam Schneider would have that part, and Bill Birch would have that part of my old constituency, and I would have to go and compete for Waipa. Um, it was then going to be about the third safest national seat in the country. Um, but I wasn't... Um, I think it's, it's obvious in 1978. I really didn't care if I won or not. You'd started prepping your PhD even then. I had, <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're so organised. <laughs> in the book, you um, talk quite a bit about the policy issues that you're passionate about before you get into politics, but then also once you're in there and the independent research you undertook to assist the advocacy work you did for your constituents and the issues you cared about, and the various very complex political and procedural navigation skills that you were required to undergo to get them addressed. Um, so here I'm thinking of the sporting context with South Africa, homosexual law reform, chasing fathers rather than mothers on the DPB, and the rules and procedures around rape. When you were elected, did you feel a great responsibility to represent the diverse interests of women 
as a group once you got into parliament to, un, to undo the sexism in organisations and the structures of society? There was a momentum in New Zealand that was created initially, I think, by uh, the all-women MPs who were all in the Labour caucus, who pushed for the Select Committee on Women's Rights. The terms of reference for that Select Committee were very careful to ensure that reproductive freedom and violence against women weren't part of the terms of reference. So, it, it, but still, it was something. Um, and International Women's Year in 1975 had given a lot of momentum to the women's movement. Look, I'd just turned 23 when I won the seat. I didn't presume for a minute that I knew how to be across women's lives. But Ruth Richardson once said to me, the difference between you and everybody else, Marilyn, is that you believe their stories. It's very powerful. So you've mentioned reproductive rights, and that's one of the policy issues you talk about a lot in the book, and one that's still a hot topic for New Zealand, and that's abortion. So you're going to take a moment to read for us a section from the book about the 1977 Commission report and National's um, legislative strategy following that. Uh, could I have some light? Thank you. The Contraception, Sterilisation and Abortion Commission had reported in March 1977. In April, Des Dalgetty, Muldoon's lawyer and Society for the Protection of the Unborn Child President, hosted a dinner at his home for Muldoon, Frank Gill and the Roman Catholic Cardinal de Laghi. It was here that they worked out the strategy for dealing with the Royal Commission report. Gill, they decided, would introduce the bill based on the report. Dalgetty and Spuck would get busy drafting their amendments and lobbying MPs so that they would have one of their anti-abortion supporters move all these amendments, something Gill couldn't do. Gill would introduce the bill in October that would give Spuck plenty of time to get organised and lobby. Muldoon, who'd made himself leader of the House and so controlled the daily parliamentary order paper, would take urgency and run the debates all night to get them through all stages as fast as possible. There would be no reference to a select committee. Spuck, Dalgetty and Muldoon had settled on Chief Government Whip Bill Birch to be their man. On the first reading of the bill, Mike Minogue made his feelings about Muldoon's tactics plain. I certainly resent the fact that I'm saying this at 25 to 2 in the morning. I can hardly think what I'm saying. This is no time for decision making. As the bill and debate moved to the committee stages, anti-abortion MPs moved quickly to make the legislation even worse. Dalgetty succeeded in getting his draft of the long title accepted, including the phrase, quote, having full regard to the rights of the unborn child, end quote. A crucial clause proposed by Gerard Wall, quote, that all possible means of resolving the risk to a woman's health must be exhausted before an abortion could be approved, was passed at 5.58am by 34 votes to 26. 
At 6.05, a clause moved by Labour MP, Sir Basil Arthur, removed fetal abnormality as grounds for termination. We lost again, 34 to 26. The inclusion of rape as an automatic ground for abortion was voted on at 7 a.m. We lost 37 to 22. Fetu Turakatni's proposal for putting, for putting the abortion decision in the hands of a woman and her doctor um, of her choos choosing lost 45 votes to 15. George Gere was trying to find some middle ground. He moved amendments all night. They were all lost. The third reading passed on the 15th of December 1977. The Contraception, Sterilisation and Abortion Act of 1977 was unworkable. No one would or could operate legally. That's just in case you happen to think Alabama and Mississippi are a little out of line <laughs> with where we are. Despite your position on this um, conscience issue and the redistribution and the new selection, you, you were the resounding winner of your selection as candidate and then obviously the resounding winner. Were you surprised? At WIPA? Of yes, when you, when you shifted in 78, after all the work oh. in 77. Yes, and, and all the attempts to, um, yeah, actually sort of leave me out of everything. Um, look, if I was going to win, I really actually needed to win on the first ballot. And um, I didn't go and visit all the voting delegates. Uh, and I thought I was home by three or four, which would be enough, but I was home by one. Wow. Yeah, wow. So, <laughs> so um, but I'd learned some machinations from Mike Minogue that, that worked for me there with the special executive votes. So I even managed to turn my father into one of those. So, so. <laughs> the details are in the book. The book does give us incredible insight into the workings of Parliament and that you know, the public administration and the research and the political process that's invisible, I think, to a lot of us on the outside, that, that regimen that exists in Wellington. And, and your book reveals just how much policy work you undertook on behalf of your constituents, but also on behalf of women. So apart from the significant moment in 1984, which we're going to come to soon, um, are there other policy outcomes or agenda-setting moments that you view as a as sort of a significant contribution that you've made, but not necessarily visible to all of us on the outside? Only what I learned that led to counting for nothing, I think, because all of those years were just an accumulation of evidence, questions and evidence, all the time. Um, I didn't have a victory like Mike, Mike's victory on official information. And he was extraordinary on that. He led on his own for so many years. He suffered a lot of criticism from others as we put through the official information, sorry, the Official Secrets Act and then the SIS amendments. 
Um, but Mike was trading all the time uh, for the Official Information Act, and I still think of him every time I use it or try to persuade my students to use it, because that was an, a contribution to our constitutional uh, democracy that one man really managed to pull off. And sometimes forgotten in that sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, your, your mention of gathering evidence over the course of this nine years is really interesting because we now live in a, a world where evidence-based policymaking is a thing, and yet that was in your maiden speech, the importance of data and evidence and going out and getting it, and quite often you went and did that on issues that you were passionate about separately to the work that was being done by cabinet ministers, just so that you had the evidence to present to counter arguments when required. I was taught that by George Gere. I was taught that as his research assistant uh, in 1974 and 1975. And we went and talked to everybody. Um, so the Master Builders Federation, but you know, much earlier. So timber merchants, concrete suppliers, tracking local authority permits, you know, for new buildings and for additions and alterations. And he even tried to get Ashley Rush, who, Russ, who was from a carpenter's union, to come and talk to him. You know, he, he was just, a, he taught me, don't just rely on government data that's being, that's old by the time you get hold of it. Who are all the interested parties? Who can give you much more information? And I took that, for example, into the um, contraception, sterilisation and abortion um, bill. And I was asking Gil all these questions about different hospital practices. And he wouldn't answer them. He was Minister of Health. So I just wrote to every superintendent of every hospital. And something like 18 of the 23 replied. And they all said, how extraordinary, nobody else has asked me. You know, so um, you were constantly rewarded as well uh, with information. And, you know, then I used questions in the house, I think, in a way possibly nobody else ever really has. There was a rule that you were supposed to get, especially if you were a government member, um, you were supposed to get the questions you wanted to ask the minister approved in advance by the minister before you lodged them in the clerk's office. So I would just wait, I'd have it in my parliamentary desk, and I would wait until there was an acting minister and he was away for the day. So I'd get the acting minister to sign it and then I'd put it in and then off I went. And, and I asked more than 100 questions every year and some of those were phenomenal. So. Um, I think in that part you mentioned about the DPB and everything you've just been hearing. <laughs> so, you know, it's, um, they can't tell you who the father is and it's all these young women who, you know, are promiscuous and, um, uh, it, and what a terrible waste of money and so many of them are double dipping. And so I said, like one of the, I think one of the first questions is, how many people in receipt of the domestic purposes of benefit are on it because 
the maintenance payments that are due to them are um, not keeping up, 22,000. How many people are there on the DPB? 22,600. You know, it's, uh, um, so, so once you're on a roll there, you know, how many years, how many staff have you got sitting in DSW to process all of these maintenance um, cases that have to be heard in court? Oh, you're 180 short. Oh, and how long does it take for any of them to get to court? Three years. Oh. And why can't that be, you know, the case, the, that be improved? Oh, it's all done manually. Um, you know, so it's like, you just keep going. You just keep going. And in the finish, you can turn an argument about women in receipt of domestic purposes benefit into an argument about men who fail to pay maintenance. But you're on your own, and you just have to find strategies to do that. So in addition to that issue, in the book, it's littered with other issues of, of import to women. Um, I'm thinking here of um, rape trials and 245T and divorce laws and all sorts. And, and so you're doing lots of other work and you're doing this women's work as well. But there's a part in the book where you talk about sisterhood well, you don't use this term, but I am. You know, you, you've done this chapter, co-authored this chapter in the book, Sisterhood is Global, but locally, not all the sisterhood were supportive during your time in office. Um, well, you know, being a member of the National Party was um, obviously something that meant you couldn't possibly be a feminist, and they tended to let me know that. Fortunately, I didn't believe them. Um, you know, that's, that's just how it is. Uh, I'm also really aware that the patriarchy loves it, you know, if women are at each other. So you only find it once in the book, but it's quite sufficient when you find it. I must say that a couple of pages later, I was talking about the Australian Women's Weekly saying something about me. And I'd written in the draft, they obviously hadn't paid any attention to the central committee. Um, but my editor just decided it would be good to take that out. <laughs> so in addition to working inside New Zealand, you start doing study tours and you go to Harvard and you go to women's conferences. Um, and, and you start to speak about feminism and New Zealand together to a global audience and... and you call for the elimination of all exploitative dependent relationships, including that between men and women, and you caused quite a stir. And your interest on the global plight of the status of women couldn't be sated, despite, despite this, you know, the, the opposition to, to what you were saying. So right now you've got another reading from the second half of your book that speaks to this topic of your growing and then perennial interest in the international. Um, so in 1981, uh, I was very privileged to be offered a fellowship at Harvard University in the Institute of Politics. Uh, so I'm 
writing back to my constituency about how it is and what it's like. And it has an interesting juxtaposition at the end. Within days, I listened to a panel of Susan King, Jean Eidenberg, and Joe Garber discuss Carter's policy, foreign policy initiatives. These were three of my Institute of Politics fellows. The IOP fellows were part of Harvard's outreach to the community. The courses we would teach were open for anyone to attend. They were not formal degree courses with assignments or exams. We would have the opportunity to attend these ourselves or indeed audit any course at all on the Harvard campus. My course focused on issues in international feminism and attempt to move my class away from US myopia. My enrolment of 50 was high and at the first meeting we enjoyed lots of laughs as men and women introduced themselves and spoke about why they had come. Two women had a Kiwi parent and missed the accent. The Harvard community was, I'm oh, sorry, I taught for um, two hours on a Monday night following a dynamic two-hour dinner with the other fellows and their guests. Every Thursday, we also dined with a key guest who would speak to us on current topics, energy policy, Caribbean politics, El Salvador, union activities. This was as diverse a group as you could imagine. I was especially interested in the discussions on Central and South American politics, which I knew little about. Um, I had some logistics issues. I couldn't access the libraries without a social security number, but I soon learned the librarians kept false numbers that would work in the system for people like me. And there were scores of libraries at Harvard. I walked through Harvard Square and passed many bookshops every day. This was heavenly. I was reading Alan Mallis's The Politics of Housework, Jeanette Radcliffe Richards, The Skeptical Feminist, Kathleen Barry's Female Sexual Slavery, and The Best Kept Secret, Florence Rush's book on the sexual abuse of children. Every week I had to choose from too many events. I went to panels on the politics of world hunger and an alternative foreign policy for the five major regions. I went to hear Jim Clad and Tim Francis speak at the Fletcher School on New Zealand foreign policy and former Jamaican Prime Minister Michael Manley at the IOP Forum. I listened to feminist Andrea Dawkins' lecture on pornography and male supremacy. In March, I wrote back to the electorate that I felt privileged, lucky, and much enriched. I certainly wasn't missing anything back in Wellington. At the caucus on the 4th of February, I was very pleased I wasn't there for the discussion on birching. Minister of Police Ben Couch had seriously floated this as an idea, explaining that he had to be seen to do something in an election year, and if not birching, then what? There had been some supportive uh, response to the idea in the polls and the media. More medieval madness. Of course, some in caucus thought this was well worth serious investigation as a punishment for some crimes. It was an election year winner. There'd be no problem administering it. There was always someone who would do it. Mike Minogue replied that research hadn't shown that birching would reduce climb and crime and that bashing people had a mindless appeal. Ozzy Malcolm agreed that the instinct for revenge was strong, but he didn't think people seriously wanted the government to consider birching. Paul East doubted the courts would impose the sentence, even if it was there. 
Muldoon argued that support for the idea in the polls made it a difficult political issue. Fortunately, the proposal was not supported by caucus. <laughs> What was your relationship with Muldoon like over the whole nine years? It reads as if it was complex from the start, but, but you'll know, obviously, be able to explain that more. I also th wondered if you might like to just talk briefly about the departure of Holyoke, because that was a surprise read to, to find that that was a disappointment for you, in a way. By early 77, so you have to know, Sir Keith, um, he was in the No Māoris No Tour camp. He had no problem with a South Pacific nuclear-free zone. He had no problem with um, what the policy for the National Party with respect to apartheid sport was, which was no visas and no government interference. But for Holyoke and I, no government interference meant no support from the Broadcasting Corporation, no support from the National Airways Corporation, no support from the Tourist, Tourist Hotel Corporation, in which case you don't have a tour, you see. Um, and we were getting a lot of backlash about the Commonwealth Games in Canada. Tall boys had been on a tour to South African capitals, and Sir Keith had given a speech at the press club. And Muldoon came into caucus absolutely furious, and he just turned and had this go at Holyoke. I mean, for a lot of us, it was a real geez, moment, like, and Sir Keith said, oh, it was just a little something I got did with the help of foreign affairs, you know. And Muldoon said, you went too far, you know, like this. And I argue that it was that moment that he decided he had to get rid of Holyoke. And Holyoke had too much mana for the, you know, to go and be the British High Commission or Commissioner or something. And the only place to send them was to send them upstairs the Governor-General, and I just thought Muldoon could see there were a lot of people in caucus who were going to rest in Holyoke's camp on a range of foreign policy issues, and he had to get rid of them uh, because he couldn't bully, bully Keith. There weren't many people in caucus that he couldn't bully, but one was Sue Keith, so he had to get rid of him. And so was the bullying then a kind of a... a constant theme throughout the nine years? Well, you, you, you know, people say to me, what was your relationship like with him? Well, two or three times in my entire period in Parliament was I called to his office. He didn't offer me any whiskey. It was really quick. Um, so it wasn't the, you know, some of the, the all-nighters that you heard went on. The entire time I chaired the Public Expenditure Committee as Minister of Finance, he never spoke to me about that role or what I was doing um, in that committee. Um, when the very first day I had gone into the National Caucus in 1975, I'd kind of slunk to a back corner and George K. 
came and got me, George Gere. Now, come along now, dear, he said. You can't sit there. You need to sit up here with me. And up here with me was directly in front of Muldoon, in the front row. So I was always the person who could see when he got anxious because in that size chair, his feet couldn't hit the floor. And they started to go like this every time he was getting upset. So he had a good view of that behavioural tray. Um, and, and George said, if you, if you sit here, dear, he won't be able to ignore you. And George was quite right. <laughs> so, so it, you know, who, nobody liked going to caucus. Oh, well, I suppose some people did. God knows I did. Um, but that's the relationship. I mean, that's it. I, it's not somebody whose company I'd seek, seek out, really. <laughs> so that takes us to the now famous moment when you crossed the floor on the nuclear-free New Zealand bill. And it's a moment that's now connected to a new feminist leader in climate change. The pressure on you must have been intense during that time. Can you walk us through that event? Um, okay, and this is probably why it's taken so long um, to write the book. Um, Muldoon called the election and he said it was because of Marilyn Waring's feminist anti-nuclear um, issue. And I've just let that rest because what really happened is a bit more complicated <laughs> than that. We lost that vote. Mike and I crossed. We voted for Nuclear Free New Zealand. Um, Knapp and Beetham voted for Nuclear Free New Zealand. Uh, but um, Kirk and McDonnell and the Speaker uh, voted against Richard's bill. But that's all forgetting we already had, it didn't, we already had a bill that was still alive. Gary Knapp's bill was still alive and it was still in the Disarmament and Arms Control Select Committee. So something else went on and here is what it is. As we were building up to the introduction of Richard's bill, David Thompson, who was leader of the House, came to my office. He tried to cajole me around loads of things. You know, he'd been young and idealistic once too, and we could all grow out of it. And I'd lose my pension and, you know, a whole lot of other things. And then at the end, he said to me, well, I have to tell you that even if the bill is passed, the Executive Council will refuse to send it to the Governor-General for signature. And I stood up and I said, David, I can't believe you just said that to me. I think it's time you left. And I really hope you don't say that again, anywhere. So Richard takes the call to introduce his bill and the Speaker gets up immediately, immediately. This is connivance with the Leader of the House in anticipation and immediately reads out a standing order that says uh, that the Executive Council has the power to recommend that a bill not proceed and that that will operate in respect of this bill and so he must now tell the House that this bill cannot advance. And Richard gets up to take a point of order 
And Harrison just sits him down and says, I'm not going to hear debate about this now. And Thompson stands up again and says it again. And I'm sitting beside Mike in the house, and Mike said to me, we were both reaching forward for standing orders, and Mike said, the lunatics have taken over the asylum. And, and we open it because Thompson hadn't made clear to me there was actually a standing order. And I remember sitting there in the house and I went through the mechanics of trying to take the call every time and I knew I'd be shut out. That's fine, I was used to that happening. And I knew we would lose the bill, but something else had happened now. And I'd always wondered when it was that I'd be so triggered there was no point of return. And this was it. There was, it was such a fundamental principle of democracy that whatever happened on this bill, I was not going to be here anymore. So I went home and I'm really, sometimes my characteristics are truly pathetic, you just have to live with me, with, armed with three really large pieces of A3 paper and I mind mapped I can resign from Parliament, I mind mapped, I can resign from the National Party, and I mind mapped, I can withdraw from caucus and all select committees. And the government had a majority of one, I'd ensured that I got on the three select committees which were fundamental for confidence and supply. So I was on public expenditure, foreign affairs, disarmament and arms control. If I pulled from those three, the government was in trouble every time the committees sat. If I pulled from caucus, I was no longer subject to the whip. I didn't care, you know, like a couple of extra hours each day. And I also thought, though, I will... So I did that all night, and I thought, OK, I'll start with the one that um, gives the least opportunity for there to be any effect on Catherine O'Regan or any effect on my people in Waipa and that probably will leave me the least harmed, <laughs> um, given that none of them were great. But, and that there was a kind of a... a if the first didn't work, the second was still there, the third was still there. Muldoon was itching for a fight. He'd tried to pull a fast one on the Whangarei oil refinery. He was always looking for industrial disputes on which he could pull for an election. We'd had this um, price and wages freeze for years. We knew he had no ideas about what on earth he was going to do in the next budget. Um, it was obvious to everybody, he was drinking heavily. I figured maybe I could just give him enough room to hang himself. And so the, the memo that went to the whips was that I was withdrawing from... It went to the whips after I had gone to check with the clerk of the house that what I intended to do could not provoke an election in terms of my behaviour, my behaviour could not provoke an election. And then it just, 
played out. I went off to a violin masterclass, which was a nice way to spend the morning while everybody else went off to caucus. And when I came back to the house, nothing had happened. And I actually thought to myself, oh, you know, there was a possibility he would be that smart and not call my bluff. But the thing was, the whip hadn't opened the envelope yet. <laughs> and when the whip opened the envelope, off it all went. The only two people that night who asked me why I was doing what I was doing was President Sue Wood and General Director Barry Lay. And when I told them what I was doing and why I was doing it, it was, it was a fundamental breach of every basic principle of democracy, let alone every principle of the National Party, and neither of them tried to argue with me. Muldoon never asked me why I did what I did. And so your conscience was clear. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.